friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. And in this repeat episode from our archives, which published earlier in 2020, my guest is David Premer. David's the author of a book titled Sell the Way You Buy, a modern approach to sales that actually works even on you. And he joined me on the show to talk about how salespeople can arm themselves with progressive strategies for connecting with modern buyers. And we dig into why so many sellers find themselves executing tactics that they sense are outdated, ineffective, and inconsistent with their personal philosophy. We also dive into why so many sellers are what David calls unconscious sellers, and what he's identified as the biggest barrier to salespeople changing their behaviors. All right, now, all that and much, much more before we get to David, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it with David. David, welcome to the show. Thanks, Andy. Pleasure to be here. Well, pleasure to have you. You're joining us from where today? From beautiful Toronto, Canada. You'll, you'll be able to tell by my accent, I say process and project and stuff. You do. So you do, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's okay. So how are things in Toronto? Are you guys like all shut down like we are here or... Oh yeah, we're all living our best lives in uh, in isolation here, here mm-hmm. for sure. No, it's you know it's it's quiet. It's nice. You know, uh, it, it's funny the way I've kind of been describing it to people is when my first child was born, she was born at like six o'clock in the evening, and then I remember it was you know I was staying in the hospital with my wife, and it was like two o'clock in the morning, like that same day, and she starts crying, and I thought to myself, is this how it's going to be from now on? Is this is she just wake up and cry? Like is this how it's going to be? And I feel like we all kind of went through that. <laughs> A few weeks ago, when you know everyone's locked down, and we're like, "Oh, is this the way it's going to be?" And now I actually feel people are getting used to it a little bit. What do you What are you finding? Yeah, yeah. It was, well, it's very quiet here in New York City, um, but yeah, we we have kind of a small apartment that was really meant to be sort of a, a second second home because um, we're in the process of moving from New York to San Diego, and this is going to be a place we come back and stay when we visited instead we're locked up in it and uh yeah yeah tight it's a little tight quarters as i say and my wife who's a professor and associate dean at NYU school of medicine is is holding meetings and uh teaching classes from from our bathroom (laughs) while i'm while i'm recording because my my studio is out in in the main part of the apartment so yeah she's having she's being a very good sport about the whole thing well, you know what, I, I think that this, you know, and, and this will be um, interesting to see kind of obviously how it plays out over time and all the lessons that we've learned as a society. But at least the nice thing is, you know, as I've been kind of continuing my, my business and doing Zoom mm-hmm. meetings and the whole and the whole bit, and you see, you know, people have like kids draped all over them and you know, cats are on their head and, you know, they're in bed because they actually only have a studio apartment and don't have a couch. Like, it's actually quite humanizing, I feel, all of these these great stories. So that's, I don't know, maybe a bright spot that's coming out of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we do, like, we joke because we do have, you know, what we call the gym, which is where our Peloton is located. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then, you know, it's like we sort of make believe and fantasize that uh, we're actually back at our place in San Diego, which is substantially <laughs> larger and has rooms you can walk into. So someday, someday we'll get there. Um, oh, yeah. Good. Yeah. This too shall pass, as we said. So tell us a little bit about you, David. So uh, what was your first job in sales? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, like most people who end up in sales, I had never intended to end up in this great profession. Uh, I ended up here by accident, like everyone else. Mm-hmm. So I actually, I actually started my career as a research scientist, and I got into sales at the turn of the dot com boom. So kind of nineteen ninety nine, two thousand, when you know, you know, everything was just exploding. And I joined a little startup here in Toronto. There were twenty people at the time as a sales engineer. And uh, a shout out to all the the great sales engineers uh, out there listening. We, yes. all, we all know we all know who closes these. Deals <laughs> That's the right. The ones that really close the deal. Yes. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and so I started as a sales engineer, this small company, which basically meant like we did everything. You know, we did the demos and the custom config. And I had been a, a coder in my in my uh, research scientist days, building computer models. So you know, it was kind of normal for me to to do coding and that kind of stuff. But absolutely, kind of fell in love with sales because to me, sales turned out to be a bit of like an engineering problem. Not that it's all science by any stretch. I mean, there's sort of mm-hmm. a huge human element. But there was, you know, kind of winning and losing. And, and when I said it like this way, the customer understood it. When I said it like that way, like it went over their head. So that's kind of how I, I got my start in sales. And we, we actually grew that company uh, from about 20 people to 700 people. And uh, it turned out to be a $100 million business. And, and we IPO'd and, and got acquired several years later. And I just just got absolutely hooked. What was the name of that company? company was called WorkBrain, based in Toronto. It was an enterprise workforce management software company. So we did basically uh, scheduling, time tracking, mm-hmm. payroll mm-hmm. calculations for, for very big companies, retailers, banks, airlines, that kind of stuff. So if you had to say, okay, there was one person that really was sort of responsible for teaching me how to sell. <laughs> Who was that big influence on you? Uh, you know what? I'd say one of the, the like, let's say the, the biggest and consistent influences in my sales career was a, the, actually the fellow who brought me in to work brain in the first place, a fellow by the name of David Stein, who I'm still good friends with today. Um, he was one of the co-founders of the company, um, scarcely a little bit older than, than I was at the time, you know, a 25 year old kind of kid being, being shoved in there. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, he was one of these, what you call kind of like natural sellers, just, you know, mm-hmm. high conviction, super smart. Um, he was actually the, um, turned out to be then the CEO of the third startup that I was a part of when I joined. There was just five of us, and we ended up being acquired by Salesforce. We worked at Salesforce together, and so he continues to be a good friend and, and mentor. Okay. So you've had this successful career before starting your own thing, worked for Salesforce for a long time. Um, what's your sales superpower? So my sales superpower is what I refer to as synthesis and not being prepared for this question, but it's, a, it's, it's actually a question I would often ask uh, candidates when I would hire them say like, what's your superpower? Like, what's the thing that you're just really good at compared to everyone else? Or, or put it another way, the thing that when we look back months from now and you're a, a, an amazing success in the sales profession, we're going to say to ourselves, of course, you know, of course, Andy was going to be great at sales. He told us this was his superpower. So my <laughs> superpower, I refer to as synthesis, which is mm-hmm. the ability to um, kind of take complex topics and kind of boil them down with, you know, examples and make them very relatable. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I had to do, of course, as a research scientist and then a sales engineer. And, you know, even today, uh, you know, a lot of the research they do and the things that they teach come from just you know, oftentimes like scientific research, but also life examples that you apply to to selling because sales is uh, is all around us. So that's that's the superpower. It's called synthesis. No, I like that. Yeah, I, I, I oftentimes use that term myself when people ask me that question, but slightly different, which is the ability to synthesize a number of different inputs from the customer and come up with a, a solution that was unanticipated. 
That's true. You know, being able to, you know, to your point, like to listen and, and it, it's almost like not even just the solution. It's the problem. You know, sometimes sure. people come to us and they're not even really clear what the problem is. And we help just like, think about it like a good doctor, like who asks you, is the pain more of like a shooting pain or a dull pain? And you're like, well, actually, now that you mention it, right. But you wouldn't have come up with that synthesis. all mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, we're going to talk about your book which you just published called Sell the Way You Buy, A Modern Approach to Sales That Actually Works. So <laughs> there's an implication <laughs> in, in there that uh, most of what you might read about sales or people advocate as a way to sell actually doesn't work. Is that sort of the, did I read that correctly? You know, you, you could you could certainly interpret it that way, yes. You know, it's, well, it's it could be controversial <laughs> and say that, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, look, it's it's not that everything that we do in sales is categorically ineffective. Um, however, there are tactics, which let's say salespeople have been taught over the years, which have now been scientifically proven to be ineffective um, in well, a sales context. Like what? So, you know, for example, um, you know, often referred to as, let's say, closing tactics, right? So imagine you're talking to a customer and, you know, as a salesperson, you're trying to kind of, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, kind of close off all the angles, right? Like you want to kind of box your customer into the sale because you don't want them to kind of wiggle out. Mm -hmm. So you're having this conversation and you say, you know, Andy, you know, do do you think there's any reason why you don't think we could get a deal done today? (laughs) And and (laughs) these are called closing tactics and we taught people how to do this, right? You know, like, well, is there any reason? That's not past tense. They're still being taught. Oh, this is the problem, Andy. You're absolutely right. We, and, and the reason is, it's funny, like the way I actually describe like why this is such a problem. It's, it's literally the, on page one of the book, um, the first chapter is called um, the Cobra Kai Paradox. And for those yes, listeners who are... Karate, karate Kid. Exactly, karate yeah. Kid reference, right? And the idea behind sales is that we don't teach sales in school. There are actually, you know, I think I referenced, you know, over 4,000 post-secondary, you know, institutions in, in the U.S. and only about 100, 150, 200 or so have anything to do with teaching sales. And so the way we learn sales is just by the kind of the, the sensei, like the people who taught us, right? And then they learn it from the people who taught them. So this is this great profession that's, you know, the, the lore and the tactics have been passed down. But a lot of times these things get passed down from, from time to time without due consideration for how people actually buy and how that's changed and whether, those ta- whether there's new evidence to support the, ta- the fact that those tactics do or do not work. And so that's kind of how we end up, if I can say, like in, in a bit of a mess, as you say, people still execute those tactics. But to your question about, you know, which tactics no longer work, that's an example. Like these closing <laughs> tactics, when you... Did they ever? People, <laughs> did they ever work? Well, you know, the, whether, they, whether they worked or not, like people did them and people still teach them, right? Well, but I think that's, but I think that's one of the things that's fascinating about sales is, and I, <laughs> I was just writing about this, is, you know, there's this law of supply and demand that's just broken in sales. And I sort of phrase it this way is that you know buyers have you know a high high demand for uh trusted advisors, we'll put it, right? They've got a low demand for people to be what I call salesy. You know, to your point about these old shop worn closing techniques. Sellers have high supply of salesiness <laughs> and a low supply of being trusted advisors. Right. <laughs> and you would have thought that given the high demand on the part of the buyers for trusted advisors, that the salesiness would have disappeared over time. But it's been amazingly persistent. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, well, why has that been the case? I mean, there's a, a buyer's not saying, please, you know, Andy, 
love your product, but you're just not salesy enough. Could you be more salesy? <laughs> I need you to shoehorn me into this solution and kind of, you know, <laughs> box me in with your clever negotiation. Yeah, right? Well, to that point, I remember <laughs> my very first sales training class decades ago, watching these videos of this guy named Lee Deboy. Um, and so I was working at that time for a company called Burroughs, second largest computer company in the world at the time. And and we were you know, in a training center and watching these videos and his, they were talking about handling objections. And you know, the whole way you're supposed to handle the objection was to say, well, well, just suppose that wasn't a problem for you, Mr. Prospect, right? So <laughs> you could say, look, I sell cars. I only sell them in blue. And the prospect says, well, that's, I love the car, but I'm only going to buy a red car. You'd handle the objection saying, well, just supposing we made one in red, would you buy it from us? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the guy said, well, sure. Well, I can't make it in red, but I can sell it to you in blue. You already said you like it. I mean, <laughs> and the fact is you still hear people doing that today. Well, you know, that's actually, when used properly, that's a, can be a very powerful tactic, in fact. You know, <laughs> I, um, <clears throat> I refer to that tactic in my book, in the objection handling chapter, as turning the future into the past, which is a term we used to use a lot in my third startup. But this idea of, like, oftentimes when you hear an objection, you're always wondering as a salesperson, like, what's on the other side of that? Okay, let's say, to your point, let's say we overcame that. What's on the other side? Now, the way you've kind of described it, if I can call it a, a more nefarious way, is like being able to box someone into a decision well, right, right. versus being able to use it as an exploratory tactic. Because sometimes when a customer says, like, it's too expensive, and you say, well, okay, fair enough. Like, well, what if it was free? Right? You know, like, let's overcome that objection. Like, what if, I'm not, it's not free. But like, well, for example, what if it was? You're not actually trying to box them in because making it free or, or having the car in red is not something you can do. But what you're trying to do is figure out, okay, like, what else is there? Is, is that the only issue? Or is that issue masking a bigger issue? And you're telling me it's too expensive because there's actually something bigger at play that you know, we need to address first. So I actually do think it can be a very um, appropriate discovery <laughs> tactic for well, objection handling. Yeah, but that's the whole point you said, mm-hmm. right? You're only mm-hmm. trying to do when, you, when you're doing is not to box people in, but to say, there's a question behind this objection, right? For me, objections are just questions. Somebody's asking for more information. And about something, right? And your job is, yeah, you got to discover what that question is that that you need to answer. Absolutely, I call that the the intent. Like I and, and I give the analogy. I call it the objection handling iceberg. You know what people say is just just the tip. Mm-hmm. You know? So, for example, if I said, "Oh, it's too expensive," like think about all the different permutations of too expensive you can come up with. Like, what does that even mean, right? And so, it's like the, the example yeah. I give. Let's say I invite you out on a date. And you say, you know, oh, you know what, David, too, I'm, I'm busy Saturday. Well, how do I know what, do you ever want to go out with me? Or, do, or are you just going to keep, keep coming up with excuses? Or do you have a logistical issue with, you know, that you're busy that day, but another day might work? You know, so I have to keep asking. It's a, it's a discussion, right? It's not, uh, not an interrogation. It's not uh, a one-hit crush, but that's, that's what sales is. Yeah. Well, I said it's not something to be handled. It's something to be discovered, as you talked For about. Sure. So, yeah, early in the book, you wrote, and you sort of, talked about this is this idea that salespeople find themselves in this dilemma they're executing this is a quote executing tactics they sense are outdated ineffective and inconsistent with their personal philosophy and it seems like increasingly in sales it's hard to find room for people's personal philosophies well you know i so when you say you're hard to find room are you are you saying like people kind of 
are very clear on what their personal philosophy is. But no, no, the, 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 the way the sales processes are set up these days is that there's no room for being an individual um, or developing, even developing your own sales philosophy. It's, you know, there's sort of one way. I think, you know, so I agree that, you know, organizations are trying to put together, you know, these sales processes and playbooks to be able to, you know, ramp and onboard reps effectively, especially young, you know, sales reps who, again, receive no formal training in sales. And so they're just looking to the organization. But I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, what I talk about is execution. Like I can give you a tactic uh, and teach it to you and write it down in a playbook. But the way you execute that tactic, like the tone, right? Uh, the kind of the pacing of your words has a huge impact on how the customer will perceive it. And so, you know, I think when we, th- we think about like, what is our own personal philosophy, that's kind of where the two intersect. So for, if I were to give you an example, you know, a mm-hmm. tactic that we often w- would use, especially at Salesforce was a re- reverse psychology tactic, if I can call it that. And I, I talk about this in the book as well. So let's say the customer says, you know, hey, look, we Salesforce really love your product, but you know, Microsoft is, is half the price. Like you're you're double the price of Microsoft. So we would train our sales reps to to challenge the customer, and 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 basically kind of uncover the reasons why they may or may not decide to go with Microsoft. And so the words, um, why don't you go with Microsoft, can be said in all sorts of different ways and tones, right? That may or may not align with your philosophy. So for example, if you're, if you're like a, if you're trying to challenge the customer directly, you might say, well, why don't you just go by Microsoft then? Right. In a very like antagonist, kind of antagonistic way. Right. Versus if you do it more in like a, an inquisitive way, like, I'm, I'm curious, like, you know, Microsoft is a good company. If I'm you, like maybe, maybe I should go that route. Like why, why might you not go with Microsoft? Right. And so the question is, you know, do people feel that they have the liberty to um, kind of enact their own kind of personality and tone through their tactics? Or are they being told that they or they feel they're being told to execute those tactics in a certain way? It's kind of like the, the karate kid, like sweep the leg, just sweep mm-hmm. the leg. Right? Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> maybe there's a better way. Well, but the feeling you get from but I get from you know talking to salespeople and to looking at the research and studies that come out about this as well is, yeah, increasingly they sort of feel like being dictated to them. And I and contrast it with my own experience coming up in sales is that in retrospect, looking at what I see happening so often now is I feel incredibly fortunate to have grown up with managers that gave me enough rope to hang myself. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, so if what you're saying is true, which, you know, very well could be that, you know, hey, look, there are some organizations and, and that hasn't been my experience where, you know, it's, it's kind of very directive in terms of how people should behave. But if that's the case, then what it means is that, yes, there's a ton of people out there that are going and executing tactics that in the back of their mind, they're thinking to themselves, like, this is not me. Like, this is mm-hmm. not how I would behave in normal everyday life had I been not, not, you know, sitting in my sales seat. And it's almost like they're kind of whipping out their sales badge, like their FBI badge. Like, Excuse me, sir. I'm, uh, I'm in sales here. I'm just going to treat you like a jerk for the next half hour, but it's okay. I'm in sales. Like, being in sales does not give you the right <laughs> to, treat, to treat people poorly um, and, and to be honest, when you start behaving in a way that is inconsistent with how you are as a person, it creates a, a big ego strain that actually hinders your ability to be successful in selling. Yeah, well, so let's pursue that a little bit further because, yeah, there's research showing that you know, sales performance sales is falling in general in B2B sales over the last seven years, I think now. And granted, it's somewhat yeah, you know, it's not a rigorous scientific study, but you know, it's a survey of a broad number of companies and the other data points 
And yet, at the same time, when we've you know have a certain great influx of technology into sales, is is how do we? What's going on? I mean, what what uh, if not that people aren't being encouraged or developed to be their best sales selves? Uh, what's what's happening? What's accounting for that? So, like, why is sales getting harder? I don't know if it's getting harder, but what we're seeing is the data saying that we're performing less well. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, some of the, there's a, there are a few factors. I mean, the average tenure and age of a sales rep is decreasing, right? So people are staying in their roles for less time. Um, they're they're much younger, especially in you know kind of the the and this is more like a tactical you know for for those listening, kind of like a tactical hiring thing that in the in the key markets like the let's say the the New York, Chicago's, San Francisco, you know, Atlanta's like these big markets. Um, you know, it's getting more expensive to hire salespeople and, and you're actually getting less for more. You're paying more money for a younger salesperson, um, which is why you see actually a lot of people hiring in, in some of these secondary markets. But in addition to kind of the age and tenure decreasing, I mean, that's just on the sales side. On the buying side, things have changed quite dramatically. So there are like a million different, I'd say, you know, exaggerate, but like, for yeah, example, million, right? a million, like there's so many different solutions out there, like the barrier to create a solution for someone to buy or a product. And, and this is great for entrepreneurs. It's never been lower. It's so easy to mm-hmm. come up with a solution. And so if you, for example, and I, I we, you know, this is, these are well quoted stats, but I talk about it in the book. If you're looking for like a marketing technology platform. In 2011, there were 150 vendors, and in 2019, there were over 7,000. And while you are one of those vendors, and you might think you're this unique, delicate snowflake, to your customers, you just all sound the same. You all sound the same, right? For everything that we do, I train salespeople, you run a podcast, there's a million people that do what we do. And it's actually very hard for people to understand the nuance, especially when everyone kind of says the same thing. So we end up kind of falling into the sea of sameness, which makes it even harder for the salesperson to kind of, you know, breach the defenses of a, so you're taking a younger, less experienced salesperson to breach the defenses of a customer that is more peer driven, more skeptical, harder to reach than ever before in a sea of a a million solutions. That's why you're seeing what you're seeing. Well, so let's explore this idea about being younger because I'm, I mean, what do you mean when they're younger? I mean, everybody starts at some point, right? It's true. You know, there's a, a concept I, I talk about in the book and, and talk about a lot called experience asymmetry. And th- this is kind of where it came out of. Most salespeople, well, you know, I know there are exceptions, but let's just, I'm going to make a blanket statement here. Most salespeople have never done the job of the person that they're calling on. Is that always, always been true? Yes. Always been true, right? So we're calling on people whose job we've never done. At the same time, salespeople are told to call high, right? Like call high, call the CEO, call the VP, call the CLO. We're, to, we're told to call high. So we have all these like younger, and I'm not saying everyone's young, but let's just on the whole, like we're younger, less experienced sales reps calling on more senior level decision makers whose job we've never done. And how this manifested for me, and I would see this a lot, like one of the, the great things about working at Salesforce, and I was a, my company was acquired by Salesforce, that's how I ended up working there, but I, I had a, a five-year career there that was, was amazing. The, the team was, was great, um, the environment was great, and one of the things I really enjoyed was just the availability of data. Like you're able to see data at scale that you can't see at a smaller company. And I used to manage teams out of um, a bunch of cities, including New York. Uh, where you are. And the thing I loved about my teams in New York, and shout out to all my New York sales reps if you're listening, is just the hustle. 
right? Like the whole, the whole pace at which they work is amazing. Um, and they make lots of calls, lots of emails, and lots of activity. But sometimes you would get reps that would have actually quite a lot of activity and very little pipeline. So I would start to listen to them. I'm like, I, I don't know what the, you know, are you call? you have enough people to call? They say, yeah, we got enough people to call. Are you making enough calls? They're making enough calls. They're calling at the right time of day. So I'm like, okay, I just got to listen to your calls now. Like I got to, let's hear the recordings and, and see what I hear. And what I would hear is in the voices of these younger sales reps is fear. Like it's, if I were to close my eyes and just listen to the recordings of these sales reps, it would, I would close my eyes and I would say, it's, it sounds to me like you're bothering them. Like that's what it feels like. It feels like you're afraid that you're not adding enough value. So you're like, you're, 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 you know, you're, you're, um, what's the word I'm looking for? You're tentative, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're, mm -hmm. you're not coming off with the conviction you need because you're thinking in the back of your head, who is this senior person and why would they listen to me? And you know what? That's exactly what they're thinking. Who is this kid? And what are they going to teach me about running my business? And so like that, that conviction and that experience asymmetry is a, uh, you know, is a huge factor, right? In our ability to convert customers. And it's actually, it's one of the, the challenges I had early in my career as a sales engineer. I was 25 going into these boardrooms of like United Airlines and Citibank and so on. Sure. So why would they listen to me? Well, but I was just, the point I was trying to get to is, you're talking about younger is, is or so you're saying is that they're being promoted into more responsible, sellers are being promoted into more responsible positions earlier than in previous eras? Well, so what I'm saying is as a younger seller, like you don't have the, ex like the, the experience in the chair to know what the person you're calling on right. cares about and does every day. I just, yeah, I was just trying to understand where you think that's different now than it was, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago, which to me, that's why I'm sort of, it seems like it's the same. It's, it's similar. I mean, the average age of the sales reps is decreasing and the tenure is decreasing. So for example, if I was 25 years old or 30 years old, let's say, but I had been working at the same company for several years and, and understood their products and services and customer, you know, landscape very intimately, mm -hmm. I'd be in, I'd be in totally fine shape. But if I'm moving jobs every 18 months, I'm not building up enough tenure. And there's actually some really interesting research that shows that, you know, the, the difference between spending, let's say, 18 months versus 24 months at a company is, is you know, is, can be quite big in terms of your ability to convert customers and be, be successful. So I, I think you're right. The, well, the average age is getting younger. That hasn't changed. But also on the buying side, and I'm not saying executives are getting older, <laughs> so that divide is getting bigger. But, you know, again, in a sea of similar sounding solutions and a million different, you know, uh, options out there, the, the ability to kind of ignore sales reps is almost a required defense mechanism for many customers, right? They sure. need to do that to survive. And I think that's one of the things that's changed a lot. Yeah, I, so I wonder whether the, the problem is, I don't say different, but I mean, there's a, there's a component to it, which, which I think doesn't get spoken enough about. And you, you address it somewhat when you're talking about, you know, just, a, yeah, I've never been in that CEO's shoes. But one thing that's, that seems to be almost completely absent from the way that we educate sellers, because, you know, to your point early on, very little education uh, at, the post, at the secondary level, right? So basically we're teaching people on the job, is we don't teach them about business. So the ability to even, you know, have an understanding of what the CEO is doing is... Well, if they're not sitting there and reading it on their own, it, it doesn't exist. 
and learn. I mean, so this is this to me, this is the big disconnect, right? Gartner studies, 80% of CEOs find no value in their interactions with sales reps. Well, yeah, let's start there. It's because they just don't understand the business. There's definitely a component of not understanding the business. You know, one, I actually kind of go a, a, to a little bit to the side of that, where I talk about this concept of value, because this idea of like value and ROI, like what's the value to the business? It's like, okay, if I'm talking to a CEO, what does a CEO care about? And we think, oh, it's, you know, stock price, shareholder value and employee satisfaction, all these kinds of things. And, and some of these things might have ROI to them. Hopefully a lot of them do. And as salespeople, we're told, sell value, sell value, sell value, which really what, what our leaders are telling us is sell the business value. If you spend money with my company, you mm-hmm. will either make this much money or you will save this much money. That's the value. But the reality is people make decisions in our lives for all sorts of reasons. And most of them almost all have to do with feelings, not necessarily business ROI. And so the question of like selling value has to do with the discretionary feeling that your buyer has towards your product or service, which may or may not have anything to do with ROI. And so, you know, to get into the heads of these CEOs and and leaders or whoever you're selling into, it's important to understand that there's a huge difference between the business impact that whatever you're selling can have and the, and the kind of discretionary feeling that it imparts, because that's what people are buying. Well, and you left off, I think, perhaps the most important part of the discretionary feeling, which is the discretionary feeling about you. Right. <laughs> well, certainly, like if you, you, you might love my product, but if you hate dealing with me, I ain't getting the sale. Exactly. Right? And on the flip side, you might actually, and this, you see this a lot, right? And especially in the startup world where, you know, your product doesn't work, you know, surprise, surprise, exactly how <laughs> the customer hoped it would. Shocking, shocking. Shocking. But you know what? They believe in you. They believe in your company. They believe in your mission. And so they're going to give you a second chance, right? Sometimes I'll even ask, you know, and I actually, I believe we're all in sales. So I actually work with a lot of certainly salespeople, but a lot of customer success and account managers and people that are responsible for renewals. And I say to them, has anyone here ever saved a deal, saved a churn, a customer from churning for the sole reason that it just came down to them? The customer didn't, didn't, <laughs> didn't, you know, cancel their subscription because I was so good and made them feel so good about, you know, doing business with us again. And hands go up, right? Despite the kind of the business value, people are still buying into the kind of that, that personal belief. Well, <laughs> so the, the question would be, do you think they were right? Do I think the customers were right to buy no, into do you the think, people? Do you think the reps were right to say, yeah, they stayed because of me? Yes, I do. Yeah. I, I, I do too. I just interested yeah. you. <laughs> I appreciate you challenging me on that. No, look, there's lots of times and, you know, and you see this all over the place. Like how can, and I saw this actually quite a lot at Salesforce where you would have a territory that had been statistically and historically underserviced. Like why can we not crack Raleigh, North Carolina? I don't understand. Like what's going on you know, in Raleigh, North Carolina? And there's been no rep that's been able to be successful there. And then what happens is the chosen one comes, you know, like the Neo, the chosen one comes along and all of a sudden they have success in Raleigh, North Carolina. And it's like, well, how did you do that? Right. And a lot of times it was just different tactics, different personality, different tone approach. You know, some people, um, you know, some people just have it. It does oftentimes come down to like that person. Well, I mean, you wrote about this specifically in the book is, is, you know, quote is, You say, what is truly amazing is that when it comes to converting prospects into customers, even the smallest and seemingly insignificant parts of our sales motion, 
can inspire that sense of conviction and safety. And yeah, I call that the 1% differences. You only have to be 1% better in some <laughs> dimension. And it's not really clear what that dimension is. Uh, you know, there's a study published, I don't know, six, seven years ago in the Harvard Business Review that two professors talking about what they call tie-breaking selling, is that when you have sort of virtually identical products or perhaps even a commodity market, that it's actually, it's non-monetary factors that spell the difference. And that could start with the salesperson. I mean, you have to presume in this world, in this time and day and age, that oftentimes you're competing against products that are virtually identical to yours, offer virtually identical you know, benefits and, and ROI to the customer. What spells that difference? Well, I think it starts with the person. Absolutely, it does. No, absolutely, it does. You, you, to, to your point, you know, all the products to our customers kind of sound the same. And I often actually talk about sales as like, we're the audition for the company. Like what, you know, if I can use the first tip of the spear, first experience, you know, and in fact, I I had this discussion with a a salesperson. I was looking to get some catering for a a sales training event I was running. And so I spoke to the caterer and they said, I sent them an email and they said, no problem, David, I'll get you a quote like in a day. And then a week later, I get this note saying, oh, sorry, David, I'm really sorry. This fell through the cracks, but no, no, I'll get get you a quote in the next hour. They got me a quote and it was completely not what I'd asked for. And I said, sorry, this is not what I asked for. And they're like, oh, sorry, sorry, David, our bad. We sent you the wrong quote. And I'm like, well, it wasn't the wrong quote. It had my name on it and, <laughs> and, and all my information. And so I, I, you know, I, I kind of just you know, called the person up. I said, look, you know, this is like an audition. Like you're trying to provide catering services in hospitality where presentation, it's not the food. The food is probably fine. It's you know, how do you serve the coffee and tea? It's, it's the presentation's everything. And if this is the audition that I'm getting, I don't, don't have a lot of confidence that this is what you know. I'm going to get the, the the presentation that I'm after. So yeah, we are absolutely there. We're the audition. So a couple other points I want to cover while we still have some some time to talk is 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 one that you know first of all, the book very well done book, uh, very smart. Um, definitely recommend people read it. Is is you talk about um, this idea of making best guess decisions based on limited amount of information and. Isn't that always the case? I mean, that's almost always going to be the case when people make decisions. Is they make them on, you know, there's, they're assuming a certain amount of risk in their calculation, but they can never completely know what they're going to get. Absolutely. Like, you know, people oftentimes think about, to, to go back to our discussion on ROI, right? And so people say, no, no, well, in B2B sales and, you know, highly involved technical sales, like we have to put a business case together. And we got to, you know, it has to be rigorous and all these kinds of things. And that may be true. But when it comes down to like a business case, the real question is, is the person that you're presenting this business case to, do they believe it? Do they believe all of the assumptions that, that, that you put in? Do they believe that your organization has the capability to deliver on the solution that's going to net out the assumptions that you put in the business case? At the end of the day, it comes down to, I want to say a guess, but like, it's a belief. It comes down to a feeling. Either you believe that that company can deliver or you don't. And it's not just about the product. It might be, you know, it, you know for example, even like case studies. You know, p- people ask about, you know, case studies and references. You know, customer says, can I speak to a reference? Well, I'm not going to put someone in front of you that's going to say bad things. I'm going <laughs> to get a good that's why no one ever calls them. <laughs> well, that's a, well, this is the thing. We always had a joke that, you know, the, the, the request for a reference isn't so much that they want to know what the reference says. It's just that if you can produce one at all, 
right? So the, mm-hmm. the so someone was asking me the other day, and they said, you know, what kind of case studies and so on are you know are important to have on your website? I'm like, you know what? The the idea is like when I when I go to a client section of a website, and I see that there's people saying nice things, it's almost like a, a checkbox. It's like, all right, good, they got yeah. <laughs> they have clients yeah. that are happy with their solution, right? And it comes down to a feeling. Now, whether I believe those clients are actually happy. You know, becomes an, well. I will. I be like them. You know, it's an educated guess. And even in our personal lives, if I want to go on vacation and I go on TripAdvisor and I I look at the the resort in Jamaica that I want to go to and I I see well, like Betty in Des Moines, Iowa, gave this place a five out of five. But I'm a Canadian guy with th- three kids and Betty is a retired librarian. You know, I, I now I got to take my best guess. You know, like and and we do this all the time. This is the kind of the heuristic that we apply when we make our our decisions. Well, yeah, but I mean, you also, you talk about this, these various areas of belief, but really they fundamentally boil down to, do they believe in you? Because you're, you've been the one representing the company and what the product does and what it can accomplish, and you presented the references and so on, is, is yeah, I think the two, two, or too infrequently, is sellers aren't conscious of the fact that, you know, the question they really need to answer is, why you? Right? You know, why you, David, when somebody when you're selling to somebody, that's why should I believe you? Why should I trust you? And you don't have to be the point you make in your book about you know, sellers just don't stop to think about what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Is you gotta stop and think about this is where it all starts. It starts with me, may end with me as well. Absolutely. You know, it, you know, it comes down to like a feeling, and that feeling I often describe as you know, conviction or passion. You know, it's you know, sometimes I'll ask people, I say, can you tell that I love what I do? And I'm, I'm not fishing for compliments, but can you just tell? And they'll say yes. And I say, well, how do you know? And they say, well, I don't know, you seem like you know a lot about stuff and you, you, know, you seem very passionate, you quote stuff and you seem very, you read a lot. And I'm like, that's true, right? But like, you're not fact checking anything I'm saying, right? It's just, it's a feeling you're getting mm-hmm. from me. And that feeling is very contagious. The trick is, how do you actually manifest it? A lot of times, if to to go back to kind of what you mentioned at the beginning, Andy, is that, you know, when we, we kind of, we train people and we tell them what to do, they haven't found their own conviction. They're trying to manifest the conviction that their manager just told them to do. And when they do that, it comes off as inauthentic. And anyone who's taken a, a, a prospecting call from a telemarketer who is reading from a script knows what that feels like. You know, mm-hmm. I, I often ask people, I say, how long does it take you? When someone, a telemarketer calls you and is reading from a script, how long does it take you to tell that's what they're doing? Yeah, I mean, you know, instantly. Instantly. And I, I even give the example of, of my kids. So my, I have, so my three kids right now are 14, 11, and 7 years old. And so I, I say to people with kids, I say, you know, when your kids come to you and they're about to hit you up for something, you know, like they want permission to download an app or they want a lift somewhere. So can you tell? Like even before they say anything, they're like, yes. I can, like just by the way they approach you, right? Mm-hmm. And so I believe people are very perceptive, as it, especially as it relates to salespeople and the inauthenticity. But to your point, it's the authenticity, it's the passion, it's the conviction, which oftentimes leads to the, the feelings of belief uh, in the seller and the organization and ultimately is what converts them. Yeah, it, it, this is a big thing with, with me and has been for forever is, is you know, sales is a very deliberate act. And I think at every step along the way, you know, I sort of rebel against this idea somebody had written once about, you know, sellers being unconsciously competent. And it's like, yeah, I understand why you're saying that, but I want people to be in the moment 
all the time. For me, people I've worked with that I've seen that I've coached that so on that have been hugely successful in sales, it's not that they're unconsciously competent, it's they're consciously competent. Absolutely. You know, I, and I refer to that in the book as um, un- unconscious versus conscious sellers, right? And and just because you're unconscious, by the way, about what you're doing doesn't mean you're bad. In fact, there's a lot of unconsciously good sellers out there. And, and sure. I say sellers, you know, you could be a personal trainer, or a hairstylist, and you're just good at what you do with lots of conviction. And you don't know why you've just always been that way. But my point of view is that if you don't know why you're so good, then it means that you could be missing a huge opportunity to be even better. And if you're, uh, and if you're bad and you don't know why you're so bad or you're not successful, it's even worse because not only are you not going to be successful in your sales role. And I say quote unquote sales role, cause we're all in sales, but you're just going to ruin it for everyone else. Right. <laughs> so that when, when you tell someone <laughs> you're in sales, they're not going to want to talk to you anymore. And that's actually, that's part of my dream, Andy, is that in the future, when you, you tell someone you're an emergency room doctor, especially now, they're like, oh my God, thank you so much. This, that's yes. amazing. You tell someone you're in sales and now you're the enemy for, for most people, right? For most people, not, not for those of us in sales who, who try to do it the, the best and right way. But you know, just on the whole, when you use, I'm going back to my Dan Pink to sell as human, you use the word sales or selling and 80% of people have a visceral negative reaction to those words. Yeah, even though he also says that three quarters of people white collar workers presume that influencing others is part of their job now too. So that's right. Uh, we've met the enemy and they are us. <laughs> well, that's why sell the way you buy. That, that's what it's all about, right? Like we are buyers and we go through life trying to make, you know, purchasing decisions and, and the way we buy things is often, you know, not clear to us. And yet then we go out, we sell and we execute completely different tactics and emotional in, in emotionally you know different ways. And so that's, that's the, the object is to kind of, you know, bring it together and sell the way we buy. Yeah, I mean, and and generally, I absolutely agree, right? Because I, I, I've done this with clients before, where I was sitting with a customer that a client that was raging about some voice tree he got stuck in. And he was trying to get customer service at some company, and he's you know talking about how ridiculous it was and blah blah blah. And, and I just picked up my phone and dialed his number and gave him an example of his own phone tree, which was horrible. And I've been trying to get him to change forever. And it's like he just had no awareness of that. That's yeah. a perfect example. You know, <laughs> he wasn't wasn't selling the way he wanted to be sold. That's right. Well, you know, it, selling the way you want to be sold, there's an empathetic component to it, which is, you know, hey, look, don't don't use tactics that wouldn't work on you. And so in a way, that's that's a little easier to come by. Um, and I would often see that, you know, with my reps that would come to me and they say, David, here's this customer, and they've they've kind of gone quiet and gone dark on us and i'm going to send them this email i'm hoping it kind of reinvigorates them what do you think and i say i don't know what do you think if you're the customer would you respond to this email this voicemail this script and they would be like uh no right so there's an empathy yeah the empathy thing i think the big disconnect though is that we never buy rarely buy things or products or services of the type that we're selling you know b2b right so unfortunately, we're sort of, you know, we're we're a mix. You know, if you, Herbert Simon's work about decision makers with maximizers and satisficers, you know, you could be a maximizer that's going to examine every single option to satisfy yourself. You're making the best possible choice, or the satisficer that gathers enough information until they decide, yeah, this is a the good enough decision. I'll make this, which is what predominantly people are doing when they're making business buying decisions. But the thing is, in our lives, we're both maximizers and satisficers. 
depending on 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 the decisions we're making. You know, hey, if I'm buying a piece of business software, I'm probably a, a satisfizer. But if I'm making a decision about life saving surgery, I'm gonna be a maximizer. Mm-hmm. And so I think we have that, this inconsistency within us based on sort of the situations we're in. But to your point that you're making before about if we have the requisite amount of empathy, then we can sort of work our way through that. Yeah, I mean, so empathy is a big, big component. Even if you know, to your point, even if it's not something that we ourselves would be in a position to buy. And and the good thing, the good thing is, like, if you are a salesperson at a company or you're selling a product that you yourself could be in a position to buy, or at least even use. You know, for example, if you're a, a sales rep at Salesforce, okay, you're not buying your own software, but you use it every day, so that's powerful. But also, it's kind of like the unconscious bit of it, which is okay. You know, the way I buy things could be based on, you know, uh, getting a lot of data and research to the point where I feel good. And so like, that's the kind of, maybe that's the kind of feeling that we want to impart to our clients, even though I would not be in a position to buy this particular piece of technology or B2B product myself. You know, I, mm-hmm. I want to make sure you are emotionally comfortable because that's what I do when I buy things. I want to make sure right. I'm satisfied, right? So those are the, those are the kind of the unspoken sell the way you buy drivers. Very cool. Well, David, we're out of time, but thank you very much for joining us. Oh, no, my pleasure, Andy. This is great. Thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun. So tell people how they can connect with you and learn more about your book. Yeah. So if you, so, the book is called Sell the Way You Buy, and you can find it wherever you buy books on Amazon or Barnes & Noble, Indigo, online, and hopefully one day soon in stores again. <laughs> it's in the <laughs> store. You just have to be able to go there. Yeah. And, and then, uh, you know, I actually give away a ton of, other than the book, I give away a ton of content for free on my website, which is cerebralselling, all one word, dot com, cerebralselling.com. Um, you can also find me on YouTube. Uh, I have a YouTube channel called Cerebral Selling as well, but everything is is linked to and from the website. Uh, you can always hit me up on LinkedIn as well, but um, those are my coordinates. All right. Well, David, thank you very much. We'll look forward to having you back on the show. Thanks so much, Andy. It's a pleasure. Okay, friends, that's it for this archive episode of Sales Enablement with Andy Paul. First of all, I want to thank you for taking time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of this program. And I want to thank David Primer for sharing his story with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And thank you for your help. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Good selling, everyone.